It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension? There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Tom Tiger. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show. We're coming to you from the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the community radio network and podcast on the internet at 3cr.org.au. Both the BZE Community Show and this show are now also available on iTunes and Stitcher, so please subscribe and rate us to help others find the shows. My name is Natalie Bucknell and I'm joined today by my co-host Michael Steindl. Hi everyone. Today's show is a significant departure from our usual emphasis on solutions as we pause for a minute to consider the science of just exactly where we're at with global warming and the implications for Australia. David Spratt is a Research Director for Breakthrough National Centre for Climate Restoration, Melbourne, and co-author of Climate Code Red, The Case for Emergency Action. Breakthrough have just released a paper written by David Spratt and Ian Dunlop titled The Third Degree, Supporting Evidence and Implications for Australia of Existential Climate-Related Security Risk. David joins us by phone today to discuss the paper. Hi, David. Thanks for joining us. Great to be with you and all your listeners. David, let's lead in with the way that you start the paper off. A large component of this paper is about scenario planning. So can you give us some background? What is scenario planning and why is it useful? Well, it's, it's interesting. When we think about climate change and the way it's presented, we think all the time, for example, people will say, well, we've got so many million tonnes of a carbon budget to achieve a certain goal. And then what they don't say is, but that's a 50-50 chance of achieving the goal. So it's a 50% chance of actually exceeding the goal. So, for example, people say, we've got this carbon budget for two degrees, but at a 50-50 chance, there's actually a 10% chance of four degrees. So this, this obsession with probabilities means that we don't look enough at what are called the high end or the big risks in, in a range of possibilities. So scenario planning tries to overcome that by painting a plausible picture of the future. It actually comes out of the RAND Corporation in the US, which developed it actually during the Cold War to think about nuclear war, which is sort of an odd parallel to what we have now. Um, <laughs> that is, what, what are the bad possibilities? What are the things that could happen that we haven't quite seen coming that would really change the outcome? So... Scenario planning is less concerned with, with probability obsession and more interested in what are plausible possibilities. And then what do they look like so that we can really try them on for size? Yes, and, and often it's about thinking outside the square. So, I mean, there's a phrase um, that was developed around this time called thinking the unthinkable. That is, thinking about the things that you don't think could happen. So, for example... After 9-11 in the United States, they had a large inquiry and the inquiry found that they, there had been what they called a failure of imagination. That is that um, the people in, involved in national security in the US 
simply hadn't imagined that that um, what could happen did happen. Uh, there, are, there are other names for it. Um, thinking in silos, groupthink, uh, just conforming to a standard form of thinking and not thinking outside the box. So scenarios are a really good way of getting around what is a, a systematic problem, particularly in climate science where... Um, too much of the policy debate's been on the middle-range possibilities, not on what would be called the high-end or the bigger risk possibilities, and they're the ones that we really need to look at because they're the ones with the incredible large amounts of damage attached to the outcome. David, um, I must say your example of this probabilities, um, I first heard you speaking about it, at, I think, in 2013 or something, Breakthrough Conference, and it was one of the most blinding eye-openers I've ever had in, in this climate discussion. Um, well, you thought, you thought the unthinkable, Michael. Yeah, well, <laughs> where you just pointed out uh, bluntly that, that they were actually talking about, for example, a two-thirds chance of achieving that, and what about the other third? And you pointed out, we don't walk into a building if we think there's a third chance of it falling down. We don't catch an airplane flight if there's anything less than probably one in 10,000, one in a million chance. Well, not, I mean, it's crashing. funny that you talk that you talk about aeroplanes because you, I mean, this is a purely hypothetical um, situation. But imagine uh, an aircraft manufacturer is developing a new aeroplane, and they think they might have a problem with a software system uh, that would cause the plane to crash and kill a lot of people. It's purely theoretical, as I say. <laughs> yes, of course. And 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 the engineers say, look, the chance of this happening is one percent. You know, there's a 99% chance that this won't happen. I mean, if a company went ahead with that attitude, really bad things would happen because those 1% has come true. And so we really do need to look in climate change at what are the top 10 or 20% of, of outcomes because, in fact, many parts of the climate system, we've seen it again in the last few days in Greenland where they're saying, look, the melt on Greenland now is not what we expected till 2070 or 2090. So um, the, the high-end risks are actually the most relevant risks. And, yeah, so human society is, is choosing to take that risk at the moment. So, David, what are the scenarios that you've chosen to explore? Well, what we decided to look at was look at three degrees of warming. Now, there were two reasons for this. If you think back since Paris, the Paris... Um, talks in 2015 uh, which mandated that the IPCC go and look at a one and a half degree scenario as well as a standard two degree goal which neither of them are safe by the way mm -hmm. um, over the last three years we spent a lot of time talking about one and a half to, to two degrees, what's the difference between the two, is there a carbon budget, can we make it and so on and what struck me is that in, in spending so much time on one and a half degrees to two degrees, we're actually not sensitising policy makers, politicians and, you know, the public at large to where we're actually going. So if we look at Paris, um, the commitments which were made at Paris by individual nations, uh, which are, are not enforceable, would take the world to a bit more than three degrees of warming. That is, if those commitments are not improved upon, by the end of this century we, we would be at three degrees. If you add in what are called the, some of the long-term carbon cycle feedbacks, in fact they're happening on a short-term basis, for example, uh, Greenland or Antarctica or the permafrost starting to melt or the Amazon becoming a less efficient carbon sink, uh, then it's close to four or five degrees. So at the moment, unless 
commitments are improved upon, we're heading to three to five degrees. And we thought it would be really useful to look at three degrees because it is, one, frightening, and two, I think, not well understood. Earlier, you were talking about using scenario planning to look at slightly less likely scenarios, but in this instance, you've actually used it to look at the scenario of where we are, where we are most likely heading at the moment. Yes, but I think I think unfortunately most policy makers think that this is this is the high end. And in fact, it's, it's the middle. It's the middle. It's not even the, the high end. I mean, we have a scenario where we talk about getting to three degrees by by twenty fifty, which I think is 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 you know a plausible scenario. And uh, one of the researchers we we relied on said, well, there's actually a ten percent chance of it being closer to four degrees than three degrees by 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 twenty fifty. So. Yes, this scenario is by far from being at the end of the high-risk spectrum. So you've chosen two different avenues for looking at that scenario or two different versions of the scenario, is that right? Well, we put together what we thought by looking at all the recent sites, some of the things that we thought the world would look like at 2050. And um, by way of comparison... In the document, we've also reproduced a scenario that was written back in 2007 when some Democratic Party-aligned, more or less, um, national security experts in the United States, including Bill Clinton's former chief of staff, um, put together a scenario back then. And just to say that the work that we're doing is actually not new. A lot of this has been thought about before and entirely forgotten. So the two scenarios sort of go together in drawing a picture um, fairly consistently of what the world would look like um, uh, with three degrees of warming. So the title of the paper mentions existential climate-related security risk. So does this imply that the existence of humans as a species is at risk in Australia with a three-degree scenario? No, no, no. Um, this is a, a, a big, um, under, uh, well, I think a failure to understand um, our previous work. We've been talking about existential risk uh, for two or three years now. Yeah, so what does that mean? We, uh, it, it means, we say, an existential risk to human civilization, uh, which is a difference from an existential risk to the humans as a species. So what we're saying, uh, which is increasingly what people around the world are saying, for example, Professor John Schellenhuber, the director of the Potsdam Institute in, in Germany and chief advisor to Angela Merkel and Pope Francis and um, one of the world's most eminent climate scientists, he just keeps on saying, if we keep on going the way we are, this risk is existential in that modern human civilization um, will simply cease to exist, that we will undo uh, a lot of the, of the um, things that constitute modern society. And that's not surprising because uh, he is on the record and Professor Kevin Anderson from the UK are on the record is saying that if we get to four degrees, it is, in their words, simply incompatible with the maintenance of human civilization. Um, the World Bank said that they thought that four degrees was um, beyond adaptation. We simply could not adapt to it. Um, uh, one of the leading researchers in the, in the, in the US, Ramanathan, says that um, three degrees would be catastrophic. That is, I think if we, if we think about climate change and the way we talk about it and think about it, we know there are physical effects in terms of heat and extremes and, and heavier rainfall and, and cyclones. Then from there we go to thinking about well, this will affect 
uh, our water uh, security, our capacity to, to grow food, uh, there will be health sectors and so on. But above those, there are two, I think there are two other uh, consequences of climate change which are less often uh, focused on. And that is, first of all, it will actually cause the breakdown of nations and states. We, this is obvious in a sense if we look at uh, inundation in the Pacific. If we look at what's happened in Syria, uh, we have seen effectively the breakdown of a state apparatus and social chaos caused by a number of factors, but very significantly climate change. Uh, we can see the same things across the, the Sahel, Sahel in, um, in places like Mali. So in the end, climate change is not just about extreme weather, food and water. Those things lead to the breakdown of states and the breakdown of relations between nations. And, and in that sense, it, it, it unravels um, our contemporary society, and that's what we mean by existential. So that's, that's an important point. With the um, increasing number of um, climate emergency declarations around the world, the, the phrase uh, and the meme existential risk is really getting much more airing. And it's important just to realise we're not saying humans will cease to exist. We're saying human society in any recognisable form and, yeah. and what we've done the last 2,000 years will cease to exist. Yeah, yeah. human society as, as we live in it in now will be severely degraded. I mean, and this, is, this, this should not be um, um, surprising. I mean, if we look at, at three degrees, we know that um, there'll be a real drying of, the, of what's called the subtropical zone. I mean, the drought in eastern Australia is a really good example of that. Um, where agriculture in the, in the Murray-Darling Basin at three degrees will become really problematic. Now, transpose that to a less developed, um, less financially resilient country, uh, a continent like um, Southern Africa, and you're going to have really, really severe problems. There, we, there will be places... Um, in the world where it will be simply too hot to live. And, and one of the, the really hot spots is the Ganges Valley in, in India. Um, we've already seen uh, in India that um, overuse of water um, and, and, a, and a really quite radical dropping of the water table has led to um, cities in India literally running out of water. I mean, and this is at one degree of warming. At three degrees of warming, uh, these problems will, will literally um, mean that there are regions of the world that you can, can no longer sustain life in. We, we want you to get into that just now. Um, for those listening um, who may have just joined us, you're listening to the PZE Climate Science and Solutions Program on 3CR and syndicated around Australia, and we're talking to David Spratt, who's just published a new breakthrough report. So, David, continue with, with um, the meat of this. What are the, what's the essence of the 3 degree scenarios? What does that entail? Well, if you, the best way to understand our future is to, is to learn from the past. And the last time we had three degrees of warming in an area, in an era called the Pliocene about three million years ago, um, temperatures were about, um, for, for the current level of greenhouse gases, what we have now, um, were about three and a half degrees warmer and sea levels were 25 metres uh, higher. Now that takes time, but there are, uh, on, on the record, eras where sea levels have risen four to five metres in, in 100 years. We don't know what it will be this, this century, but it will certainly, um, it looks like being more than two the way things are going. 
uh, particularly looking at the polar melts at the moment. And, for example, if we look at Bangladesh, um, a one-metre sea level rise in Bangladesh would displace 30 million people and inundate 20% of the land area of Bangladesh. And we know that India has built a 5,000-kilometre double wire fence, the world's first climate fence, around the whole of the Bangladesh-India border to stop the transmigration of climate refugees from Bangladesh. So that's just one example as as the sort of thing that um, that, 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 that we will see. And uh, even the United Nations, uh, in a recent report, said um, with climate change there will be... um, There'll be a real struggle for for land, um, obviously, because there'll be desertification, there'll be be, uh, flooding of of coastal areas. And they said at three degrees, they thought up to a million people would have to, in their words, fight or flee over land. And the... Sorry, a million or a billion? Uh, sorry, a billion. Yes. Uh, and they're not alone in, in, in saying that. I mean, uh, the national security scenario from the US in 2007 said, said, the, said the same thing. Well, it's a logical um, sort of figure when you look at 7 billion population and, and most yeah, of us are living yeah. near sea level on the river yes, deltas. And, and, and it will happen for all sorts of reasons. If we look at Syria, for example, in a population of around about 17 million people, um, up to 11 million people have... have uh, uh, experience forced displacement, either internally or externally, because well, that's two thirds of one popular of, of, of one small country. So that's just a microcosm uh, of, of the problem. Um, the World Peace Index, which came out recently, said that they estimated there were 970 million people in areas with high or very high exposure to climate hazards. Um, uh, so, so while it seems an extraordinary figure, if you think about it, it's actually not. Mm. So, David, when looking at the different scenarios, how do the two versions of the three-degree scenario compare? Well, we were less concerned about the national security impacts. We were just trying to look at the physical impacts and understand what what they would mean. Um, um, a lot to do with food and water, where people would be able to live. Uh, if we look, for example, at uh, the world's agriculture, a lot of it, a lot of the richest agricultural areas, by definition, are the really alluvial river deltas. If you think of the the Nile or the Ganges, um, um, and with sea level rises, they get they get salinated very easily. I mean, on the lower reaches of the Mekong. In Vietnam at the moment, they have a wet and a dry season, uh, and in one season they grow rice, and the other season they turn the rice paddies into, in because of the the amount of water and 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 and, and salt, uh, they turn them into, into prawn farms. So I mean that's the sort of thing we're talking about, where you are no longer able to produce the crops you did uh, on vulnerable um, river deltas. Um, sea level rises. I mean there was there, there was some work done that that said that in a, um, a place like uh, Kolkata in India, that if you, if you got to three, three and a half degrees of warming, there could be 14 million people displaced. Mumbai, 11 million people. Dhaka, uh, 11. Uh, Ho Chi Minh City, up to 9 million people. Shanghai, 5 million people. I mean, we are talking about enormous yeah. And these and are just weird. unfathomable for us in Australia to conceptualise, yeah. given our mm. population. Yeah. 
Yeah. That's right, and and of course the capacity to respond to 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 adapt to to be resilient is to, to a significant extent de- de- dependent on your socioeconomic status. So you know, people in Australia will be able to deal with with those changes uh, better than than people who simply do not have the the, the resources to um to change to shift to um buy another house to get in the car and drive somewhere else yeah it's a different different outlook so what what are the implications for australia david because going back to the report that's was part of the title of the report yep. hmm. and well, we've, we've only well, got about four or five minutes david okay <laughs> look the, the main implication is that the, the australian government um i think in whole at large parts of the public service and certainly um the current government simply are clueless on this issue they simply do not understand what's going on. So in terms of a government's duty to protect the people, which is supposed to be the first duty of a government, they, they are failing absolutely. Um, so they're not, they're not thinking about that. Uh, our previous report had an introduction by... Uh, retired Admiral Chris Barry, who was the former head of the Australian Defence Forces, and he says that he can imagine by mid-century literally there being hundreds of millions of people displaced in Asia with, you know, with severe consequences for Australia. And I don't think we're thinking about any of these issues at all as a nation. I mean, what we need to do is to is to stop this level of warming coming, uh, really put a lot of resources into helping these countries to, to adapt the warmer temperatures, because there will be warmer temperatures, but really stopping the high temperatures so that people can can um, live where they were born. This is this is the only solution to these problems. Hmm. Uh, I, I want to quote a line from your report, David. You said that, so wholly inadequate emission reductions of twenty six to twenty eight percent by twenty thirty are seen to be a challenging task. Unthinkable <laughs> futures, for example, that these targets might have to be much stronger. Uh, are not entertained, and that's what you're saying there. These, well, these it's, what it's, you call fat tail possibilities. Yes, well, I mean, uh, unfortunately, we can't negotiate with the laws of physics and chemistry and biology which drive the climate <laughs> system. But um, uh, you know, the political process goes on as if as if, as if this is is a uh, an issue for negotiation between mm. what is necessary and what is uh, pragmatically uh, feasible. And, and that's, that's, that's disastrous when the risks are existential because when the risks are existential, you don't get several goes at solving your problem, you get one go. Yes, a and wicked problem. And if you don't succeed, yeah. then you're not here. David, you had a, a, briefly, you had a subheading, Moral Consequences. Can you just speak to that? Well, look, I mean, where do, where do we start with this? Um, I'm flabbergasted that leaders in Australia, political political and in the business community, don't seem to bear any moral responsibility for this. It's this as if it, it is as if everything has been reduced to an economic category, shareholder value, you know, what's the dividend going to be? And it would seem to me that, um, you know, we do have a responsibility both for the people of this country and because we're a rich, affluent nation for, for those in our, our region who don't have the same capacity as us uh, to get us out of this because, you know, as, as Gretchen and students strike to say, you know, in 50 years' time, people look back in horror and say, what were you people thinking or what were you not thinking? Morally? Never mind in 50 years' time. There's a bit of that going on now. <laughs> That's right. Um, so, David... 
look, you know, this report is by necessity. It's it's fairly grim reading. Um, look, you, you have to you have to ring alarm bells sometimes. Absolutely, um, and yet you do say in the article, look, we have innumerable attractive options. If only we can move away from the current denialist group thing. Yep. So. And given that your scenario is aiming to aid that thinking, what what are our attractive options? Let's well look. I noticed in the last few days that people from these figures in the renewable industry came out and said renewables in Australia are now cheaper than coal, even without subsidies. So you know there was government support to get the renewable industry up and going. But even on the on a on a, an even playing field, renewables are just going to leave fossil fuels for dead. So obviously, one of the first things we need to do is take away the subsidies for fossil fuels because in, even in a market situation that will uh, that will really uh, produce a, a, a sea change in how we produce and use energy. I mean obviously the bigger picture uh, we see councils around the world in Australia, local government um, recognising we're facing a climate emergency and that's important. My, my attention was drawn to the fact that uh, there's been the Pacific Island Development Forum uh, at, at Nadi, which finished a couple of days ago, and they put out an incredible statement. And I just want to read you a sentence or two from it. Okay, uh, then we better wrap that up yeah, after and, that. And they just, they just said, to those governments of high-emitting countries that are hindering progress in climate change efforts to heed the climate science and urgently change directions to the benefit of all, including people in their own countries. And listen to this on all coal producers to immediately cease any new mining of coal and develop a strategy for a decade phase-out and closure of all existing coal production. That is the Pacific Island group as a whole talking to Scott Morrison, and I think that's the sort of message we need to hear. Absolutely. Well, that's a, a very clear message to end on. David, Breakthrough's been doing fantastic work. Where can people find out more about this? Uh, they go to breakthroughonline.org.au and our little film, The Home Fund, um, on climate change and national security, which is actually being shortlisted for an AFI award, is up there together with our various reports and papers and, and climate emergency guides. Well, thank you for your work. Um, I'm not sure how many listeners realise that you were part of um, one of the, the seminal works on, on climate change, Climate Code Red, and there's also the Climate Code Red site. So thank you again, David. That's fantastic. Thank you. And listeners, just briefly, if you uh, regularly, you'll know that over the last four weeks we had a Darwin special. Fantastic news this week. Darwin Council has come out and declared a climate emergency. We've been speaking to David Spratt from Breakthrough. The Beyond Zero show is brought to you by the climate solutions think tank Beyond Zero Emissions and is recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and syndicated around Australia on the community radio network. Previous episodes of the show are available on iTunes and Stitcher and if you subscribe, it helps others find us. If you enjoy the show and can donate to help cover our airtime costs and keep us on the air, please go to the BZD website and click on the donate button. We're volunteers, but there's still uh, compulsory costs to get on air. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to you joining us again next week. Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. Become part of the solution by becoming a monthly base load supporter. Go to www.bze.org.au to find out more. bze.org.au You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.